Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, August 28th, 2021. Right now, once again, it is Wednesday morning, and our friend TruthFids is here with us for this 50th installment of our series of 100 Proofs that the Israelites were white. In our last two presentations in the series, discussing Jacob's blessings for Ephraim and Manasseh, which are found in Genesis chapter 48, for Joseph in Genesis chapter 49, and the later blessing for Joseph given by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 33, we hope to have shown how those blessings were ultimately fulfilled in European history. As we have also said, the denominational churches ignore these prophecies, which with all certainty inform us of the destiny of the children of Israel in captivity, while they pretend that the ancient children of Israel cannot be identified, or perhaps no longer even exist. But it is only common sense that previously unknown nations, which arose from places to which the children of Israel were sent in captivity would have derived from the children of Israel. Now, after having discussed prophecies that make this illustration, which are found in Isaiah and Micah, we hope to continue this same demonstration from prophecies found in the book of Daniel. Hello, TruthFits. How are we doing? Hey, Bill. Yeah, doing great. Thanks for me. Uh, yeah, so so this um, prophecy that we're going through is, as you said, is one of the simplest and most basic prophecies, right, where it's completely straightforward, especially compared to, you know, some of the other complex and obscure prophecies, that it's so easy to identify the nations that, um, you know, if you just do a Google image search, you'll see so many uh pictures explaining it all that it was uh babylon and then the persians and then alexander and then the romans but somehow everyone has some kind of different spin on that last kingdom that stone cut out of the mountain that destroyed rome and um it is so obvious that it can only be the germanic tribes because we're the people who destroyed rome and, uh, you know, they'll come up with it's the church or, or it's this denomination or that or it's the pope or whatever. But but it's so obvious. And when you understand that this is the nations or sorry, the, these people would form nations that would last forever. It, it gives us faith uh, that we already should have that our nations will last forever and that we will overcome them. Right. And that can only be us, the Germanic tribes all over the world. Right, Bill? Absolutely. It, it's once you understand Daniel chapter 2 that, that the only people who fit the description of the people of God in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7 are the Germanic tribes. And it's very clear that it's speaking about them, that Daniel is prophesying that these children of God, the, these this stone cut out of the mountain without hands, and, and I will explain that, that they are the people of God, that they would have 
they are the saints of the Most High who would have the kingdom forever from that period of time. And the Germanic tribes must therefore be the children of Israel. It's absolutely clear in Daniel chapters 2 and 7. And the churches have done their best to twist interpretations of these to make you think that that this kingdom that would stand forever is the church. But the church is not a kingdom, and it never would be a kingdom. A, A kingdom, well... At this time, a kingdom was a a people, all of the same race and nation, who are under a king. And of course, in this prophecy, that king would have to be Christ. Christendom in Europe, they are the people of God, and, and primarily the Germanic tribes are the focus of this prophecy. But they are the people of God, and this prophecy proves that that white Europeans are the people of God. So, especially when when it's understood along with Daniel chapter 7, which is a very similar prophecy given from a slightly different perspective using different metaphors. And we will also discuss that this evening. One, One reason why I think most people today really don't understand this prophecy is because they don't understand that the extent to which the Roman Empire was destroyed and divided by these Germanic tribes 1,500 years ago. In the, the, if, if you read the history of the Gothic Wars in Italy, if you read Procopius, who is the, he, he, was, a gen, he was a secretary to the general Belisarius. So he was in the field. And he understood the workings of, of Justinian's army and all of their battles that they were fighting in the days of Justinian about 530 AD, perhaps. And in his history of these Gothic wars, the, the wars of the Byzantines against the Goths and the Vandals, he had explained that Rome itself, the population, was down to just a few dozen families were left in Rome. And where, where were the millions of people? Rome was a city, I think, of a million or maybe two million people at its height. They were all gone. <laughs> and the gods had taken over most of Italy. And from that time until the 19th century... Italy was not Italy. It was only a collection of kingdoms that were independent of one another. At the core of those kingdoms were the papal states, which were in and around Rome. Papal states, plural. They were several counties or regions or however you want to account them. Little principalities would be a better term that were under the pope. The, the temporal authority to Pope during that 1500 years. That was the Papal States. And Southern Italy was divided into several different kingdoms at several different times. And Northern Italy was divided into several different kingdoms at several different times. It was never united again until the 1870s when it became Italy again under a single government. 
So Rome certainly was fractured and, and divided up and destroyed for all that time. But on our modern maps, you could look at Italy and say, well, how did Rome fall? Because Italy is still there with Rome as its capital. But Italy was not there for 1,500 years or for 1,400 years, perhaps. So if people don't understand that, that history in the middle, they really won't understand the extent to which Rome did fall and how it was a collection of very disparate people, some of them Goths, some of them Romans, some of them the, the descended from the, the Celts, the Lombards, the tribe of in, in Lombardy, which were a tribe of Celts that had invaded Etruria. So, so it was no longer an empire. It was just a collection of little principalities. And of course, all the holdings abroad were also lost and became independent, right? So Rome did fall and it fell hard. It took years to patch Italy back together again in, into one single political entity. And it's still divided today. There's still deep divisions in Italy today between the north and the south. So that's a digression, but if you don't understand the medieval period, it's hard to understand the extent to which Daniel's prophecy is absolutely true. And that's why they remove history from school, right? And and now they'll say it's uh, racist to only um, study European history, right? So they completely get rid of that. But um, I, I, I've been meaning to ask you something, and now is the perfect time because we're on Daniel. The the name um, Aryan, right, which you've uh, demonstrated could very likely be our mountain and Yahweh, so the mountain of Yahweh. I, I wonder if do you think that name because Daniel would have been what about the the fifth century BC, fourth century, and then suddenly the name starts to appear like a century later. Do you think when once uh, Daniel got famous and his prophecies started to get out that maybe that's where the name originated from? Uh, that they took they heard Daniel's prophecy and started calling themselves that, or or do you think it's just a coincidence? Well. It could be a coincidence. I, I don't like to conjecture on history, but what you're saying is plausible because Daniel was famous. Ezekiel was, a, was among the captives in Babylon. He mentioned Daniel in several places. They were contemporaries. They lived at the same time. And Daniel actually went on to live longer than Ezekiel did, apparently. Ezekiel lived at least some years after the destruction of Jerusalem, he was taken into captivity in Babylon before Jerusalem was destroyed. And so was Daniel taken into captivity in Babylon with those first thousand or 10,000 princes and artisans and craftsmen that the Babylonians had taken from Jerusalem back to Babylon. It's evident that both Ezekiel and Daniel were caught up in that. I don't remember the exact passage where that's explained in the books of Kings and Second Two Kings and Second Chronicles, but it was one of the last kings of Judah that that 
had happened under, and it might have been another 10 to 15 years, I don't remember exactly, before Jerusalem was destroyed for good by the Babylonians. So these men are in captivity. There's no indication that they knew each other personally, but Ezekiel mentioned Daniel. Now, a lot of people want to contend that that must be some different Daniel, but there's only one Daniel known to us in all of scripture and history. There is another Daniel who was a Canaanite prophet. I don't think Ezekiel is going to extol the virtues of an early Canaanite prophet. I just don't think so. That's only known to us from certain ancient inscriptions that we can't even be assured that Ezekiel had access to those inscriptions. So, it seems to me that the Daniel that's mentioned twice by Ezekiel, along with, I believe, Noah and Moses, that that must be Daniel our prophet, who certainly was the man that he said he was in his book of prophecy, that he truly was an officer in, in Babylonian government. And, and for at least a time had access to the Babylonian king. That's Ezekiel chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28, where, where the prophet mentions Daniel, where, where the word of God mentions Daniel. So I believe that's our Daniel the prophet, without a doubt. And if Josephus had written his Wars of the Judeans for the Northern Barbarians in Aramaic, as he explains in the preface of the book, expecting those Northern Barbarians to understand Wars of the Judeans. And this is the first century AD. Then certainly those same Northern Barbarians would have understood the writings of Daniel and would have been able to read them in the 6th century B.C. Daniel lived during the 6th century B.C. Probably in, it, until at least, of course, the, the rule of Cyrus the Great after the Persians had subjected Babylon to their rule and the Babylonian Empire fell apart and it became the Persian Empire, Daniel saw the early years of that according to his own book. So without a certainty, Daniel lived until at least 530 BC. So that's the 6th century BC. And his writings certainly were spread during that period because Ezekiel <laughs> knew of the wisdom of Daniel. So that's my opinion, but what you're saying is plausible for that reason, that at least some of those northern barbarians, because some of them, that they were the Israelites of the captivity, they didn't read or write Greek, and for that reason alone, Josephus called them barbarians, because he wanted the Greeks to understand whom he was referencing when he wrote Wars of the Judeans, when he wrote that explanation in his preface to the book, he was translating it into Greek and wrote the preface 
to give a little history of why he had written the book. So he would have wanted the Greeks to understand who he was talking about, so he called these people Northern Barbarians. And by that, he definitely meant the Scythians and, and Parthians and the other tribes of the Israelites who lived among the Medes and the Persians, because that's where they were planted after the Assyrian captivity. So while a lot of those people had migrated to the north and west, they didn't all migrate to the north and west. And Josephus had explained that they were still, in his time, an innumerable multitude beyond Euphrates, which puts them in, in northern Anatolia and, and the land of ancient Media and the area that we would know today as Armenia and the coasts of the southern coast of the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. A lot of them had left and migrated into Europe as late as the 2nd or 3rd century AD, another 100 or 200 years after Josephus. And there's historical evidence of that in the legends of Asgard and Asa and, and Odin, in the Germanic legends of the Aesir and the Vanir. So yeah, we're going to get to that with the Saxons as well, right? Well, yes, the Saxons came from those people. The Greeks originally called them Kimeroi or Kimerians, and then they started calling them Scythians. And, and Saka, the, the term Kimeroi, the Greeks had taken from the Assyrians, from what the Assyrians called them, and they were the Kumri of the ancient Assyrian inscriptions, which proved that they were, proves that they were Israelites. And the Persians, for some reason, called them Saka. I can't know the exact reason why they were called Saka by the Persians. In Aramaic, I believe, writing in Aramaic, they may have called them Saka in Farsi or their own language as well. So, And um, just one more thing, Bill. Uh, Bill. Um, when uh, Alexander invaded and um, he came to Judea, I'm not sure if it's true, but some of the priests said that they had had prophecies that he would come, that they knew that eventually someone would come from Greece and beat Persia. So um, I wonder if the prophecies started spreading into Greece, because just where I've been reading Polybus, he was astonished that um, a, a wise man stood up and said, just like Macedonia crushed the, the Persians in a hundred years from that, another nation far away will come and take Greece as well. And and Polybus lived to see that prophecy, the, the Romans taking it. So I wonder if some of the Greek philosophers just heard the uh, prophecies from, you know, Daniel to Judea passed on. And then, of course, they would claim it as their own. And uh, that spread as well. But what, what do you think of that is possible, right? In, in my opinion, that was probably coming from Daniel, that Daniel was the original source for that. And yeah, they the, would put it down to Poseidon or, or something like that, right? Right. That the crushing of, of Macedonia, yes, they would take that as their own. Once they saw it realized, they would want to attribute it to their own gods. That makes perfect sense. But the crushing of Persia by the Macedonians is so clearly prophesied in Daniel. And I believe that's in Daniel chapter... 10 or 11, it's in Daniel chapter 11, I believe, he actually 
prophesied how many kings there would be in Persia from the time of Cyrus and how the Persians would fight with the Greeks and then how the Greeks would ultimately destroy the Persians and conquer Persia. The, the goat and the ram. The prophecy of the goat and the ram. So yes, that's a very profound prophecy found in the book of Daniel. The, the mainstream commentators, the Jewish critics of scripture, they don't want to believe that Daniel made these prophecies. They want to believe that Daniel was written by a later hand. So they try to claim that Daniel was written in the 3rd century B.C. or the 2nd century B.C. But it's very clear that Daniel's writings had existed in the Septuagint. And what is also very clear is that Daniel had information about ancient Babylon expressed in his book, in his book of prophecy, that the ancient Greek Greeks of the Hellenistic period did not have or understand. So if the Greeks didn't have these or understand these, it seems less likely to me that a Hellenistic Judean writing this book called Daniel, as the Jews assert, would have understood them, would have understood what ancient Babylon was truly like. If you read Herodotus, who wrote around 450 to 430 BC, and what he had to say about ancient Babylon and how it was built. And, and even though he described Babylon, he seems to have described it accurately because the city still stood in his time. The Persians didn't destroy the city when they took it. The gates were ultimately opened for them. And they took control of the city, but they never destroyed it. So Herodotus seems to have accurately described what Babylon looked like, because it was still standing, as he wrote. But he had no concept of the true history of ancient Babylon, even of Nebuchadnezzar, and what Nebuchadnezzar had done in Babylon as he ruled over the Babylonians as their king for about... I believe about 60 years, maybe 50, but it was a long time. So, and the Babylonians really couldn't hold it together after Nebuchadnezzar died. But Herodotus had no inkling of any of the history of Babylon during the time of Nebuchadnezzar that we can see is true from both Daniel and from archaeological in archaeological findings that have been dug out of the ground in Babylon. And the archaeological findings all agree with Daniel about things that Herodotus had no concept of. And Herodotus attributed the building of Daniel, for example, to Semiramis, who was a semi-mythical goddess in, in the Greek view, in the Greek view of things. She was actually, the Semiramis story, I believe, is modeled on an Assyrian queen of the 9th century BC, but that's another story. That's another digression. So Herodotus attributed the building of Babylon to Semiramis, but Daniel attributes the building of Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar. And not that Nebuchadnezzar built the city from scratch because it was always there, but Nebuchadnezzar had rebuilt the city and it built its walls, 
according to Daniel, and archaeology proves Daniel to be correct and Herodotus to be wrong. So what I'm saying is that Daniel had a better knowledge of Babylon, and that's just an example. There's a lot of other examples in his writing. Then Herodotus had 150 years, or not even 100, not even 100 years after the Persians, after the Persians came to rule Babylon. Yeah, in regards to um, the Jews claiming Daniel's fake, uh, as always, they claim to be, you know, the Israelites, the chosen people on the one hand, but on the other hand, it's all a lie, right? They're always, uh, you know, everything they say just doesn't make sense. Well, right, they deny their own, the, the scriptures they claim to be theirs, they deny. They do it all the time. Right now, you have schools of, they call themselves biblical minimalists and, and things like that, that don't even believe that anybody in the Bible existed before the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. They like to think that Ezra made it all up to give a certain band of Canaanites a national identity. And, and that's their story. It's crazy. It, it's, it actually denies all of those ancient inscriptions that have been discovered that we do know that the Old Testament is true from the ancient inscriptions. Who destroyed Rome? We'd already discussed the prophecy of the four beasts of Daniel chapter 2 quite some time ago in Proof 34, which is found in part 12 of this series of podcasts. There we had identified the four kingdoms of Daniel's interpretation of the Book of Nazar's vision, of a beast made of four metals, gold, silver, bronze, and iron. The four kingdoms which, which the beast represents would rule wheresoever the children of men dwell. And we see that those kingdoms ruled over the white nations of Europe, Mesopotamia, Northern Africa, and the Near East. So, in part, the explanation of the vision in Daniel chapter 2 reads... Thou, O king, sawest, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. This image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till... Thou sawest, you saw until. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and broke them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together, and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. After the fall of Rome, the Germanic tribes which destroyed it certainly did fill the whole earth, meaning the lands of the former empire. So now we shall read the interpretation of the vision by Daniel. That was the explanation of the vision. Daniel is telling Nebuchadnezzar what Nebuchadnezzar saw which to Nebuchadnezzar was the proof that the prophet is speaking truth. So now in the interpretation, this is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. 
Thou, O king, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. And the book of Nezar actually ruled over the central portion of the known world for over 50 years. I think it was closer to 60 or over 60, but don't quote me on that. 64 comes to my mind, but I'm not sure about that. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven has he given into thine hand and has made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. So if the book of Nezar is the head of gold and he has this great kingdom, then the brass, silver, iron would all be kingdoms after his, right? Which Daniel now explains. And after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. The Roman Catholic Church tries hard to twist this interpretation to itself, to fit itself into the picture. But the church did not destroy the four kingdoms. Only the children of Israel had done that, as Cimmerians, Scythians, and Parthians, and later as Franks, Goths, Huns, Saxons, and Vandals. They are not all of the Germanic tribes, but they were the significant ones in the fall of Rome. So then, after Daniel describes the fourth kingdom in greater detail, the kingdom of iron, which further assures us that he was speaking of Rome, we read, And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. And right there, the church wants you to believe that it's speaking of the Roman Catholic Church. But that's just church propaganda. If you actually read the meanings of those terms, you'll see that it can't possibly refer to a church. It must refer to a people. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter, and the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. And the mountain is Zion, which is representative of the children of Israel. And the stone cut out of that mountain are the Germanic tribes which broke in pieces the Roman Empire, which had also incorporated the previous three empires, the Babylonian, the Persian, and the Greek. This was not an event which happened in a day. Rather, it was a 1,200-year process, and it culminated in the fall of Rome. The Germanic tribes which invaded Rome had both caused its fall and taken most of its territory after its fall. Either they were not yet Christians, or if they were Christian, they were Aryan Christians, as in the case of the Goths. And Aryan Christians were contrary to Rome. They were contrary to the Roman Church. So, there is no means 
by which the Roman church can claim to be Daniel's fifth kingdom. Especially since it is clearly, the Roman church is clearly an outgrowth of the fourth kingdom as a prophecy of Revelation chapter 12, which does describe the Roman church, explains in a different manner. I'm sorry, that's Revelation chapter 13. And we'll, we will discuss that perhaps in our next presentation. That would be far too much of a digression here. So, yeah, so the Roman church wasn't even established right until the, about the 5th century, was it? So, and it had, had by that time, um, the Germanic tribes had destroyed uh, pretty much all of Rome, right? Yes, and, and that's an excellent point. The, the Roman church, as we know it, was established in the days of Justinian around 530 AD. It was established by law. And we'll explain that later in this presentation or perhaps next week if we don't get to it in this presentation. But the Roman church, as we know it, the church with the Bishop of Rome as the ecclesiastical head of all of the Christian churches within the empire, that was established by law by Justinian in his novels, his new constitutions. That did not exist before Justinian established it by law. If it was the intention of the apostles of Christ for a church, for the church of Christ to be organized in that manner, then Justinian would not have had to make a law to establish it. But other bishops throughout the Roman world had resisted the plans of the Roman bishops to rule over all of Christianity, which they evidently had for at least a couple of centuries. It was evidently their intention to claim that for themselves. And other bishops, as it's recorded even by Eusebius, the 4th century church historian, had rebuked the bishops of Rome for trying to control Christi Christians outside of their own area, outside of their own episcopate, if I have to use that church term. So the church could not have possibly been that stone cut out of the mountain without hands. None of these tribes which destroyed Rome were in that church. None of them. And the Catholic Church was really only kind of West Europe, right? It, it didn't really have much power in the East or, um, you know, with the Parthians who crushed uh, the former, um, you know, kingdoms there. And, um, you know, above in the Chimerian Bosphorus or, you know, east of Scythia. So, so really, there's no way you can claim in any way, right, that the Roman Church is this kingdom. Absolutely. There is no way. It, it's just a a point of Roman Catholic propaganda because they want us to they, they want to substitute themselves for the truth of God that they've always sought to substitute themselves for the truth of God to, to make it all about the Roman Catholic Church and not about the actual people of God. They are a universal church. The Bible is specific to those actual people. 
So it's it's a demonic bait and switch. It's a trick, as far as I'm concerned. We have some points to discuss, some other points to discuss. The Persians and the Greek Sake and the Saxons, the, the Persian and Greek Sake, as the as they had both referred to the Scythians, and the Saxons. These words have a clear linguistic connection. I, I don't think it should be doubted that the Saxons aren't the Sake of the Greek writings, who in, in the earlier times were much further east than they are today. They occupied a lot of the lands immediately west of the Black Sea, modern Romania, Hungary, the Ukraine, and, and those areas. I didn't know if you wanted to add anything to that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've got the a few quotes from Sharon Turner that are um, interesting, right? He devoted a lot of his later life to um, studying the Saxons and the history Unfortunately, um, he, for some reason, uh, believed the Indians and Chinese were noble people or something. So every now and then he slips that in. Uh, and that's unfortunate. But his stuff on the Saxons is um, excellent, right? Um, so, so the first quote was right at the start. He says the origins of the Saxons. And this is interesting because the Anglo-Saxons were the people who transported themselves from the Kimbrick Peninsula uh, in the 6th century, 5th and 6th centuries to England, and um, the Kimbrick Peninsula is basically just Denmark. So it shows you that the name Kimbri was even there, and Saxons. So it shows you they're all, all connected, that, that that's what it used to be called, even up there, that the name Kimbri persisted, right? Um, do you have anything to say? Sorry, because I'm going to be jumping ahead to a few other quotes. Now, I do believe that Kimbri is just a corruption or, or an evolution of the term Kimri. I've always been persuaded of that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So so the Chimerian Bosphorus, which was just above the Caucasus Mountains, we can see a clear connection, you know, from the Scythian migrations to there. And then even the Kimri in Wales, right, where they still kind of kept the name. And, and then he mentions that, um, I'm going to butcher his name, Ptolemy. How do you pronounce that? Sorry, Bill. Ptolemy, Ptolemy. That's it. He's the first one who actually mentions the Saxons, and he notes that Tacitus uh, didn't write, uh, didn't mention him. So to, to me, that shows you that the Saxons weren't necessarily already there in the earliest migrations but as you said they come a bit later right that there were constant migrations and constant uh, new tribes appearing and pushing west and then getting pushed by the goths and then the massacre and then the huns you know etc but they were one of the later tribes right that must have come in the second or third century uh, would you agree with that bill yes i would i, I would that's that seems to be accurate that they they came okay. in when you say they came in we mean to western europe and and yeah. became known to the romans more familiarly rather than being just the general being perceived as just portions of the general mass of scythians or sake which were in Central Asia and Eastern Europe. 
which would include the Massageti. On, on maps created from Strabo's geography or from Diodorus Siculus, the Massageti are actually on the Oxus and Jakarta's river valleys, which I believe are in modern day, it might be either Kazakhstan or Turkmenistan. And these were Scythian tribes that descended from the Qumri, evidently, from the Saka of the Persians in, in the Aramaic writings that were descended from those same children of Israel, for the most part, that had come from the Assyrians, that had been taken into captivity. And all the writers equate those Scythians of the East ethnically, linguistically, culturally, to the same Scythians that had come into Europe earlier that they called Chimerians or Sake. Yeah, and and he believed that um, th these names generally started to become uh, like groups of tribes would group together and then whoever was the dominant tribe, their name would kind of become preeminent, right? Um, just like the Franks, I believe, if memory serves, in Tacitus, once um, Germanicus invaded and slaughtered loads of the um, Germanic tribes that they formed a confederation called the Franks, which I believe you've mentioned, it means the free people, right? And, and that became a very dominant tribe that we know eventually invaded Gaul and became France, right? Yes. So, so Saxons was probably, although the name, we, we think it originates from Sake, there probably were other tribes that merged in with it, right? Of course. Well, but, well um, right. So here I'm going to get to the, the name origin where he links it to Sake Sune. So he says the name Scythians and Scolotti probably pronounce that wrong, were like Galli and Chimerians, not so much local as generic appellations, the different tribes of the Scythians, like those of the Chimerians in Gaul. So basically they're all mixed groups. Uh, the Saxons were a German, that is a Gothic or Scythian tribe. So he's linking them all together and of various Scythian nations, which have been recorded the Sake or Sake, just different spellings, are the people from whom descendants of the Saxons may be inferred with the least violation of probability, Sake Sune, or Sons of the Sake. That, that's what he believed it meant, right? Abbreviated into Saxon, which is the same sound as Saxon, where, with an X this time, seems to be a reasonable etymology of the word Saxon. Uh, the Sake, who in Latin are called Sake, with, with a C instead of a K, were an important branch of the Scythian nation. They were so celebrated that the Persians called all, all the Scythians by their name, and Pliny, who mentions this, remarks them amongst the most distinguished people of Scythia. So, so yeah, th there you go, right? That, that That's what he believed, right? And I think that's a fairly reasonable logic a logical way that the name Saxon with an X could come from Sake Sune or Saxuni. Um, you know, if you're not familiar with the name, you, eventually it could just evolve to an X, right? Well, well, right, but Saxon with an X, as we know it, is actually a contracted form of Sax of, of the German spelling which is S-A-C-H-S-E-N. So once you see that spelling, that then you could put it together a little more clearly, that intermediary step, right? S-A-X-O-N yeah, yeah, is just a shortening 
of the German spelling that persists to this very day, S-A-C-H-S-E-N. And that's still used in Germany today, that spelling. It's actually the spelling of the German federal state, which we know in English as Saxony. So that's the intermediary step that you could better put together the chain of of the evolution of the words, right? So I I believe... Yeah, yeah, that's brilliant because you can see step by step how you got there. Yes, yes. Once you understand how the words go through each European language, the connections become much clearer than just going, trying to go from Persian to English, from Saka to Saxons. You have to see the intermediary steps and also understand the history because the Greek writers, Strabo, Diodorus, Siculus, and others, had understood that the Saka came from what they considered to be Asia, lands controlled by the Persians at one time, and had migrated into Europe and dwelt in the Ukraine and, and modern-day Romania and Hungary and then worked their way west from there. So those Saka are certainly the Saxons of later Germany, who are certainly the, the Anglo-Saxons who invaded England. So, so the, the Jutes, Angles, and Saxons invaded the British portion of the Roman Empire. The Goths, the Goths were Aryan Christians, and they were even Christians before Rome accepted Christianity. The Goths were already in Pannonia and Dacia. They had gone into those provinces, and ultimately they were seeking to invade Rome in the second and third century. In the third century, they were admitted into those provinces by the Romans, and they were being used as mercenaries and, and had the Romans were seeing at least portions of the Goths as allies. Well, the Goths, who were Aryan Christians, and Aryan Christianity was averse to Roman Christianity, right? That they had strange ideas about the nature of Christ. They invaded Italy and Iberia. The common origination of both Goths and Huns with the Massagete of Central Asia, according to the Greek historian Procopius, is also a fact of history. Even if Jordanes, the historian of the Goths, hated the Huns, he only hated the Huns because the Huns had ruled over the Goths in Europe that they came for a period of time, perhaps about a hundred years, to rule over, to subjugate all the other Germanic tribes in Europe before the fall of Rome. The Huns themselves. So the Goths, the, the Angles, the Saxons, the Jutes, the Goths, they're all taking pieces of the Roman Empire. The Huns sacked Rome and severely weakened the empire, which would later be overcome by the Goths and others. So the Huns had just as much a role in the fall of Rome as the Goths had. The Huns were eventually granted land that had belonged to the Byzantine Empire, and that became known as Hungary. The Franks were free Germans, 
as opposed to Germans who had been subjected by Rome. The Franks invaded Gaul. As you said, they were a confederation of diverse German tribes, different German tribes, that confederated and invaded Gaul. And they had, they had been invading Gaul, and were, they were even used, to an extent, as mercenaries by the Romans before the fall of Rome. The English word Frank describes something honest, open, or free. The name Frank did not appear in Latin writing until the 3rd century, when Rome began losing control of its German province in the Rhine. So you take these free Germans as opposed to the Germans that were under Roman rule. That's why the Franks were called Franks in the 3rd century. The American Heritage College Dictionary, 3rd edition, esteems the late Latin word Francus to have come into the language from the German. Two German cities are named Frankfurt. One significant city on the Main, which is near the Rhine, and another on the Oder, which is near the current border with Poland. The Burgundians, and this is another example of the shift west. When you read the Nibelungenlied, the Nibelungenlied is a poem, a Germanic poem, esteemed to date from the 5th century AD. The Burgundians, before the fall of Rome, were centered in Varms when the Nibelungenlied was written. In the Nibelungenlied, Attila the Hun is a chief figure. He, he's a prominent figure in the story. But later, they pushed west into what is now Burgundy. So they were evidently a part of that federation or confederation called the Franks. At the same time, the Goths also invaded parts of the empire. And the Jutes... Angles and Saxons began migrating into Britain. So all this happened at the same time. Many Vandals and Alans, and the Alans, the tribe of the Alans, is mentioned by Josephus in his Wars of the Judeans, which also helps to establish that they are a portion of Israel in captivity. The tribe of the Alans at this time were early Chalcedonian Christians, that, that Chalcedonian Christians are the forerunners of what we understand to be Eastern Orthodoxy. So even though they weren't Aryan Christians, they followed closely with the Goths, and they went into the, the Vandals and the Alans, and they went into the Balearic Islands of the Mediterranean, which are Majorca and Minorca, which are off the coast of the southern coast of Spain. And from there, they sailed to Carthage and they took Roman Africa for themselves. So all these Germanic tribes took a piece of the empire. Procopius, the historian of the time of Justinian, his view of the Huns as tall was that they were tall and fair and white and related to the Goths through the Massagetae. He said that both of those tribes came from the Massagetae. 
most of these Germanic tribes had more recently migrated further west or south from Central Asia or from Eastern Europe, long after their kindred Cimmerian and, and Galatahi tribes, which had come into Western Europe earlier. These are the tribes which invaded Rome and took its lands and filled the whole earth. And therefore, they must be the children of Israel. And they are Daniel's fifth kingdom. Yeah, we're still here, right? Nobody's uh, replaced us with these nations that eventually formed, right? That the borders have changed a bit, but eventually the nations that here, the people, we are that great kingdom all under Christ, right? Or at least we eventually will be when he returns. Right. But the borders have only changed since the dawn of the age of liberty. And and that's what many medieval historians call it. That That's the period when parliamentary democracies began to replace the ancient monarchies of Europe. And that's a whole different set of prophecies. That That's the time of Jacob's trouble in scripture where we actually think that we can rule ourselves and we've ended up enslaved to the Jew. We've ended up as slaves to these international bankers and corporations thinking we could rule ourselves. So that's a whole different set of prophecies. Even that is going to come to an end and we are not going to be replaced. And we are going to stand forever as a people, not as governmental organizations or political entities that's not what daniel's fifth kingdom is it's the people of god living as christians that's what it is and and you can what went once you understand this you can look over that 1200 years uh, as you said and see that everything transpired by yahweh's will to get to this right he uh, alexander crushed all the east and then rome set it all up and then we took it all, right? It was basically handed to us. I mean, of course, we had to fight for it and claim it, but it all set up so we got to here, right? This point in time. Exactly. But there are other prophecies of Daniel, and we'll talk about some of them in the near future in subsequent proofs. There are other prophecies of Daniel which explain some of the averse things that have happened to us in the meantime, such as the Muslim invasions and things like that. And they're prophesied in Daniel as well as in the Revelation. So we'll present some of that a little later. But that explains some of the bad things that have happened to these same people. Why Islam was able to take over what was formerly the central region of the white world, where Western Europe was just a an uninhabited or sparsely inhabited frontier. Mesopotamia and and the Levant, and when I say the Levant, I mean Syria and Palestine, were the center of white civilization. And that center of white civilization for, for each of these empires of Daniel had slowly shifted west a little at a time. So it, it went from Babylonia, it, it went north to Persia, and then west to Greece, and, and then further west to Rome. And then it went north to Germany and further west to England. So the center of the white world has shifted west for 2,000 years. 
until there's nowhere else to shift except America and other remote regions that aren't quite as populous, Australia, New Zealand. And when I say America in that sense, I include Canada, but certainly not Mexico. (laughs) This brings us to our next proof, which is the little horn of Daniel chapter 7, because Daniel chapter 7 is a parallel prophecy with Daniel chapter 2, but it goes on and explains things which would happen after the fall of Rome. Once this kingdom that would never fail and that would fill the whole earth would be established. I don't know if you have anything to say before we begin. Yeah, if um, the, the, the so-called black Hebrews claim that they're the children of Israel, then we would have seen a pope ruling over them, right? Or or any other place. It's clearly all Eurocentric. You know, as we've said over and over again, and once again, it proves that we're the Israelites, right? Well, absolutely. Uh, I mean... If if the black tribes of Africa were the Israelites, then you would have seen these empires be overrun by black Africans. And you didn't. Now, the Islamic component of history is a different subject, but that's a negative for God's people. It's not a positive. That's seen in the prophecies in Daniel chapter 8 and in Revelation chapter 9, I believe, that's seen as a detriment to the people of God and a punishment upon the people of God, not as if these Arabs were the people of God. And simply because many blacks today identify themselves as Muslims doesn't mean that Islam was ever black. It was never black. It was never black anywhere. Islam was brought by Arabs who were basically Caucasoid, if I have to use that term. They were mixed whites, but they were whiter. They weren't African blacks. They brought Islam to African blacks, and they exploited African blacks as slaves, as servants, as soldiers, and brought them into the Middle East and Mesopotamia and the Levant. And that's what turned those areas dark. That's how those areas became, those people in those areas became darker hued, if I must say, by mixing with those African blacks that the Arabs were exploiting. There's another factor too, they were mixing also with Indians and Dravidians in India on the other end of the Islamic world and with Asians and others because the Arabs had had sea ventures all the way to Malaysia and the Philippines at an early time, even before the Spanish. That's another digression and and it's a subject for a future presentation. The Little Horn of Daniel chapter 7 the Emperor Justinian is this little horn. And this prophecy correlates with Revelation chapter 13. This subject was covered at length in a paper titled The Little Horn of Daniel Chapter 7, a review of a paper by Clifton Emmerheiser, which was presented at Christogenia last November. 
Because of its length and the fact that the paper addresses other related topics, we will not follow it here but for a few paragraphs, which I will quote, but I will only quote many of them in part and add a lot of my own notes. So I'm trying to condense this subject in, into an hour, right? But it might be longer than that. In Daniel chapter 2, I'm recapping what we had just presented. In Daniel chapter 2, we see a description of an image of a man with major body parts made of four different metals, each of them representing a world empire which would rule one after another wheresoever the children of men dwell, which tells me that black Africans aren't even the children of men because <laughs> this empire never ruled over truly black sub-Saharan Africans even though there were some bastards in the mix in Egypt and Ethiopia. Daniel, informing the book of Nezar that he himself had represented the image's head of gold, we must look to the succeeding empires, the Persian, Greek, and Roman, for the other three parts of the image, as the other three were described as kingdoms which would follow his own. Those empires certainly do seem to fit the descriptions of the various parts of the image of the beast, and speaking of the end of the fourth and final kingdom of the image, the Roman Empire and its fall are clearly described, and that did not happen for several centuries after 70 AD. It actually happened, the traditional date for the fall of Rome is 476 AD, I believe, but it was really a process that took a couple of hundred years. Some years later, as it is described in Daniel chapter 7, the prophet had a similar vision of four beasts and dominion being given to each of them in succession. It is evident that these represent the same world empires as those which were prophesied in the vision of Daniel chapter 2 although they are described from a different perspective. This vision in Daniel chapter 7 also covers a somewhat broader scope and describes things which follow the passing of the Fourth Empire, the Roman Empire, which the vision in chapter 2 did not describe. So, we shall begin by reading the opening verses of Daniel chapter 7. I don't know if you have anything to add or comment on. Uh, no, not on this one, sorry. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Daniel spoke and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heavens strove upon the great sea. And that great sea is often an allegory or a metaphor for the, for the mass of people. And four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon the feet as a man. And a man's heart was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second, like to a bear, and it raised up itself on one side. 
and it had three ribs in the mouth of it between the teeth of it. And they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I beheld, and lo, another, like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, and strong exceedingly. It had great iron teeth, evoking the thought of the iron in the feet of the fourth kingdom of Daniel chapter 2. It devoured and broke in pieces, and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. With this understanding, it is evident that the first beast was the Babylonian Empire, and the second, the Persian. Perhaps the three ribs in the mouth of the bear represent the territory of three former empires which the Persians came to rule over, the Egyptian, the Assyrian, and the Babylonian. Then came the empire of Alexander, which came and passed swiftly as a leopard. And the Greeks divided it into four parts as soon as he died, hence the four heads of the vision. Finally, the fourth beast represents the Roman Empire, and the subsequent passages related to things which had transpired in history after it had also passed. Now, I mentioned this earlier, I got ahead of myself. Many Jewish and Judaized commentators cannot believe that Daniel wrote as early as he did and had prophecies so clearly about these four empires which were to arise beginning with the Babylonian Empire of his own time. Yet he did, and Daniel certainly did live in the period that his book portrays him as having lived in spite of the claims of his detractors in the first six decades of the 6th century B.C., which is perhaps, per, perhaps he was taken into captivity as a very young man, as young as 16 years old, just before the beginning of the 6th century B.C., or right around the time, the beginning of the 6th century B.C., which would be like 599 B.C., right? And, and he lived until perhaps around 530 B.C., Maybe it was the first seven decades. Daniel is mentioned twice by one of his own contemporaries, the prophet Ezekiel. He's actually mentioned three times, but it's two different chapters. And his works clearly existed by the time that the Septuagint was translated. There should be no doubting the veracity of the book of Daniel. Now to proceed with Daniel chapter 7 from verse 8. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and the mouth speaking great things. Before we proceed, we will read Daniel's own interpretation of these things, which he apparently received from an angel later in the same chapter, from verse 17. These great beasts, which are four, are four kings, which shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom, 
and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Now, after the same series of empires is described, in a similar manner in a prophecy found in Daniel chapter 2, we read after the fall of the last of them from Daniel 2.44, In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. So the saints of the Most High, the sanctified people of the Most High, which can only describe the children of Israel, are the same as the stone cut out of the mountain without hands, mentioned in Daniel chapter 2, verse 45, and the fifth kingdom of this passage here in Daniel 2.44. Now going back to Daniel chapter 7, from verse 9. Then I would know the truth of the fourth beast, which was diverse from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, whose teeth were of iron and his nails of brass, which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped the residue with his feet. That was verse 19. I'm sorry, not verse 9. And then in verse 20. And of the ten horns that were in his head, and of the other which came up, and before whom three fell, even of that horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke very great things whose look was more stout than his fellows. I beheld, and the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them until the ancient of days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. And the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. Now going back to our paper from last year, we will offer some of Clifton's comments, but he is citing another writer, William Fowler, who was close but not perfect, and Clifton expressed some of his contentions with Fowler's writing. I won't really discuss those contentions here. Clifton wrote, To identify the ten horns of the fourth beast, which was the Roman Empire, one has but to examine history, which records that ten kingdoms arose after 476 AD in the western half of the Roman Empire, while the eastern half continued to flourish. My interpretation is somewhat different from this, but Clifton agreed with Fowler here. But that's okay. History also reveals that Justinian at the head of the Roman or Eastern Empire at Constantinople, subdued three of the ten kingdoms which were established in the western half of the Roman Empire after the fall of Imperial Rome. These were the Vandals, whose kingdom had been established in North Africa, the Ostrogoths, who had established the kingdom in Italy, and the Alamanian kingdom north of Italy. And he shall be diverse from the first, and shall subdue three kings. Verse 7, chapter 7, verse 24. Justinian, as the head of the civil government, united the interest of the church and established the temporal power of the papacy, the worldly power of the pope over the governments of, of the earth, which clearly fulfilled the prophetic little horn by dominating Europe, 
for 1260 years until curtailed by Napoleon from 538 A.D. to 1798 A.D. And Clifton adds a parenthetical note, which says, ten-toed provinces equals ten horns. And then he says, correction, the three kingdoms equals Italy, Africa, and Spain, but not the Alemanni. That was a mistake by Fowler. The Byzantines never conquered or ruled over the Alemanni. So in response to Clifton's citation and his note, I wrote, of course, this note reflects a diverse opinion from that of Fowler, but Fowler certainly did err concerning the Alemanni. The name, the Alemanni were a particular tribe of the Germans in the Middle Ages, in the early Middle Ages, in this period of time around the fall of Rome. But Alemans is the name that the French identify the Germans with to this very day. And Alemanni is the name that the Spanish used to identify Germany for this very day. So you were speaking before about how one dominant tribe can give its name to all the other tribes. That's an example in the eyes of the French and the Spanish. Yeah. Um, Bill, do you find it interesting that the that the free kingdoms that were taken, uh, that they happen to be into like a corrupt Aryan Christianity just by coincidence, right? Almost like Yahweh punished them. Or, or is that even true? Were, were all free uh, into Aryan Christianity? I don't know if, if I only understand that the Goths were Aryan Christians. I don't know if any other tribe of Germans were Aryan Christians. The ones at North Africa, were they not Aryans? No, that was the Vandals, and ostensibly they had uh, at least many of the Allens with them. And the Allens... I don't know that the Vandals were Christians. I don't think so. I don't remember, but I don't think so. The Allens were Chalcedonian Christians. And and the Chalcedonian Christians, actually Eastern Orthodoxy, modern Eastern Orthodoxy was based on what historians call Chalcedonian Christianity, which is more... Sim- which is more similar to Roman Catholic Christianity and the view, the Roman Catholic view of Christ, where the Aryan Christians were distinguished because they had a completely different view of Christ, which is a heresy. Actually, the Roman Catholic view is a heresy too, but it's less of a heresy. The Aryan Christians, I don't think, believed Christ was divine at all. I, I don't really remember the the complete essence of the differences yeah i believe that he was just a good prophet as you know you can see that the jews um certainly uh spread their corruption there the Aryan concept of christ is based on the belief that the son of god did not always exist but was begotten within time by god the father that's the primary essence of that they understood that Christ was the Son of God, but they didn't understand that Christ was God. And and the Roman Catholics really don't either. In, in their Trinity doctrine, it's closer to the truth than Arian Christianity. I don't know how 
the Goths ended up with this form of Christianity. Because it, it the name Aryan, in this sense, isn't the same as Aryan, meaning a race of people. Aryan, A-R-I-A-N, is derived from the name of Thomas Arius, who was teaching that this form of, of the view of Christ, and even though he was a Christian, that he had his... This form, this teaching of the view of Christ seems to be peculiar to him out of all of the Eastern Christians, and it evidently became popular at one time. And that's the form of Christianity that the Goths had accepted. Now, of course, Arius' teachings were declared a heresy in the earliest church councils, even in the Council of Nicaea. So, the Goths were actually Arian Christians before, long before the Council of Nicaea. And they were certainly some of those northern barbarians that Josephus had written his Book of Wars to, in, in my opinion. And Josephus doesn't mention Goths by name, but he does mention the Allens by name. But the Allens were, even though they, they, they lived within proximity of one another in Central Europe, the Allens were Chalcedonian Christians and not Arian Christians. So I don't know how Arianism got into that region. That's, I think that's outside of the scope of history. I don't know anywhere in ancient writing where that might be explained. I don't think it ever was explained. It's just, it's a fact of history that the Goths were Christians before the Romans and that they were Arian Christians. And, and that was a major dividing point between Romans and Goths in early history, which even Procopius discusses. But I don't know that the Vandals were Christians at all. I don't recall ever reading that the Vandals were Christians. I could be wrong, but I just don't recall it. It seems that they were still pagan at this time. They were Vandals, right? I'm kidding. It's kind of a joke. So I wrote, and I'm going to start at, at the beginning of it because I'm not sure exactly where I left off. Of course, this note reflects a diverse opinion from that of Fowler, but Fowler certainly did err concerning the Alemanni. As for Roman provinces, there were 10 Roman senatorial provinces at the time of Christ and in the formation of the empire, which were the core of the empire, and their governors were chosen by the senate. And the number of all the other provinces, which were imperial provinces governed by the emperor, was much greater, but it had varied throughout the course of the empire. I think at the peak, there might have been 27, 24, 27 imperial provinces, but there were always only 10 senatorial provinces. So we may count the 10 toes as the senatorial provinces, except that Italy itself was governed directly by the Senate not by governors appointed by the Senate. While the ten toes of Daniel chapter 2 seem to indicate these ten provinces, which were the core of the empire, 
The ten horns of Daniel chapter 7 seem to indicate ten kingdoms which resulted from the fracture of the toes. But Clifton wanted to equate them. I wouldn't equate them. In 530 AD, Gelimer, who would be the last king of the Vandals and Alans in Africa, had deposed his own cousin, Hilderic, from the throne. But the Byzantines were allied with Hilderic, and in response to Gelimer's actions, they invaded Africa near Carthage in 533. Gelimer did not have any alliance with the Goths, as he was defeated in two subsequent battles, and taking flight, he was compelled to surrender the following year. Then, in the years 535 to 553 AD, the Byzantines invaded Italy through Dalmatia. <coughs> that would be modern-day, perhaps, Albania, east of Italy, and or just above Albania. They invaded Italy through Dalmatia and defeated the Gothic kings, Vitiges and then Totilla in Italy, or I should say Totilla in Italy. So they were able to reestablish Dalmatia, Italy, and Roman Africa for the empire. Now we must agree with Clifton that the Byzantines did not conquer the Alemanni at this time. Rather, as they were still waging war against the Goths in Italy in 553 or 554 AD, they were forced to defend themselves against the Franks and Alemanni who had invaded Italy from the north. The Byzantines repelled them successfully, but they did not subdue or rule over them. Finally, in 550 AD, there was a revolt among the citizens of Cordoba, Cordoba against Agila I, who was the king of the Visigoths in Spain. And Agila was defeated. Another Gothic nobleman, Athanagild, rose up and took Seville, announcing for himself to be king in opposition to Agila. So there was treachery involved there. After a struggle, the Byzantines became involved and invaded Spain in 555 AD. Upon their success in taking coastal cities, although the inhabitants of some of those cities remained loyal to the Goths, supporters of Agila had turned and killed him, and therefore Athanagild became the unchallenged king of the Visigoths in Spain. The Byzantines, however, were only able to hold on to their possessions in Spain for another 70 years, while never being able to fully restore it to Rome. But in any event, we can count three kings, or three thrones, which had ruled over toes of the former Roman Empire, that were uprooted by the Byzantines under Justinian. That of Gelimer in Africa, that of Vitiges and his successor Totila in Italy, and that of Agila in Spain. We certainly agree with Fowler that Justinian was indeed the little horn of Daniel chapter 7 and is not only identified by the military conquests which were achieved by his generals, but also by the civic accomplishments which he had while in office that are now explained by Clifton as he returns to his citation of Fowler, which begins by quoting Daniel chapter 7, verse 25.
So if you have no so, comments. Um, really, they wanted to take it all right. Um, Justinian, he wanted to restore the entire empire, but that was never going to happen. And um, although uh, he kind of restored the East Roman Empire for a while, the West just kept getting stronger and stronger whilst the um, East Roman Empire, Byzantine Empire, started to rot and decay, right? Probably because that's where all the... Uh, bastards would start to come in and it would just decay whilst the west stayed uh white for a very long time right right there was a schism of the church in the 10th century and that broke the east and the byzantines apart from the romans for good and from that time and in fact it had already started because the turks had already began to cross the euphrates and, and take lands in Mesopotamia and, and modern Syria. By that time, the Byzantine Empire grew weaker and weaker until it fell apart, where the Germanic West became stronger and stronger. Yes. And the Holy Roman Empire, once it materialized, was a German empire, but it was subservient to the Pope of Rome, generally subservient, not always subservient. So, the Holy Roman Empire being German in its nature and Christian in its profession, it was the first, I, I would say it was the first manifestation of the kingdom of God. It wasn't supposed to be permanent, that there are many other prophecies in play. And it wasn't permanent because by the time of Napoleon, it too had, had basically fallen apart, had broken into pieces. When the he, age um, of liberty the arose. Then he just threw him in prison. Yes, the, the Pope was actually imprisoned by Napoleon. And, and that was the final sign of the, the end of the Pope's temporal power, which was just about, or almost precisely, 1260 years after it began, as Daniel chapter 7 says it would be. A time, times, and half a time. We'll discuss some of that in, in the pages to come. Returning to Clifton and Daniel 7.25, and he's still citing Fowler. This is William Fowler's words. And he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws. Justinian's best-known work was as a codifier and legislator. He greatly stimulated legal studies and set up a commission under Tribonian, which issued the Codex, the Digest, and the Institutes. Now, they are all rewrites of Roman law, and Europe was governed by those laws all throughout the time of the Holy Roman Empire, and even many nations in Europe still have those as the basis for their law today. There was a fourth section called the Novels, which were Justinian's laws. They established the papacy, and we'll get to that momentarily. The Codex de Digest and the Institutes were originally introduced in December 534 AD and completed in 538 AD. The second edition of the Codex contained Justinian's own laws, known as the Novels. One need only read the utterance 
of Pope Innocent III in the 13th century and his immediate successors. This is when the church started becoming anti-scripture. And, and I don't know the exact citation Fowler is referring to, but I probably read it. And his immediate successors to recognize the fulfillment of speaking great words against the Most High. Study the history of the Inquisition with its massacres, martyrdoms, and every kind of persecution to substantiate this interpretation. And Fowler's referring his readers to Haley's Bible Handbook and its chapter on church history. To this I had added the following in my November 2020 presentation of Clifton's paper. I said, while Justinian's novels were new, which is why they were called novels in the first place, they nevertheless had the full force and effect of law throughout the empire. So what follows is from a portion of our commentary on John chapter 2, given here in September of 2018. So in November 2020, I'm citing a presentation I gave in 2018. The following citations are from the enactments of Justinian, the novels, chapter 131, concerning ecclesiastical titles and privileges and various other manners. Or it may be the novels, book 131. And this is from chapter one of the novels, book 131. (laughs) From chapter one, concerning four holy councils. Therefore, we order that the sacred ecclesiastical rules, which were adopted and confirmed by the four holy councils, that is to say, of the 318 bishops held at Nicahia, some people might pronounce that Nicaea, that of the 150 bishops held at Constantinople, the first one of Ephesus, where Nestorius was condemned, and the one assembled at Chalcedon, where Eutychus and Nestorius were anathematized, they were cursed by the church, shall be considered as laws. We accept the dogmas of these four councils as sacred writings and observe their rules as legally effective. Here we must add that once the state mandates the religious beliefs of the people, church and state become one and the same as the empire and the Roman Catholic Church had become under Justinian, according to this law. Now we must note that evidently, in order to get the churches across the empire to universally accept the rules adopted by the various church councils, here Justinian was compelled to enact a law. In the writings of the early church fathers, it is found that there was no such compulsion for any universal agreement of doctrine among the various churches. None. This all started in the 4th century. In in the 5th century, perhaps. Probably in the 4th. Probably after the time of Eusebius. Reading further, from chapter 2 of the same laws, concerning the precedence of patriarchs. Now, there is no precedence of patriarchs in the Bible unless they are 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. <laughs> Hence, in accordance with the provisions of these councils, we order that the most holy pope of ancient Rome shall hold the first rank of all the pontiffs, but the most blessed archbishop of Constantinople, or New Rome, shall occupy the second place after the holy apostolic see of ancient Rome, which shall take precedence all over all other seas. And first I must note that it is evident that this word pontiff had actually become used to describe a bishop, a Christian bishop, before the papacy was established, because they're already being called pontiffs, right? And that is a feature of Roman pagan religion. A pontiff, the word pontiff comes from the, the Latin word pontifex, and a pontifex is a bridge builder. A bridge is a pons, I believe. I could be wrong, but I believe that's the word for bridge. So pontifex is bridge builder, and pontiff comes from that word. And in the Christian Bible, in the New Testament, a man does not need another man as a bridge to pray to Christ or, or to make requests from God or, or Christ, right? You don't need a bridge. That was an aspect of pagan Roman religion. So just by the language alone, we should be able to understand how, to what degree, the early Roman Catholic Church and even the early Eastern Orthodox Church were actually pagan, had accepted all of these ideas from paganism that were not Christian, ever. This act established the Bishop of Rome as Pope over the Christian churches of the empire. And of course, the law only governed churches within the empire. However, in subsequent centuries, the popes of Rome worked hard to get the rest of the Christian churches outside of the empire to kiss their rings. And I say rings because I'm being nice. I don't know if you have anything you might want to add to that. But there were many churches outside of the empire at this time, especially in the West, in Britain and Ireland. Yeah, it's interesting how um, Justinian made these laws, which, um, you know, he didn't actually rule over, um, you know, the West of Europe and all the empires. But because the Pope accepted them and established these laws, gradually they were able to force Justinian's laws onto us, right? Even though that wasn't Justinian's uh, intention, right? The best way to see how the, the Roman popes had done that, I think, in my opinion, is to read Bede, because he speaks about it. I was just going to bring that up, Bede, where you see them trying to force all the bishops under Rome, right? Yes. And, and Bede was an apologist for that. He was a Catholic. So he had written about some of the disputes that the Roman Catholic Church had with the ancient Celtic Church. He wrote about that. And the Roman Catholic Church ultimately prevailed because it was able to persuade bishops and kings to come into the Roman Catholic Church. 
and that continually consolidated the power to popes. Now, in Gaul, we see Irenaeus was, was a Christian, a, a notable Christian writer in Gaul about 180 AD, long before the Romans accepted Christianity. Irenaeus probably represents a, the fact that there were many churches as well, many Christian churches already established in Gaul, that were outside of Justinian and his establishment here of the power of the Pope of Rome, the Bishop of Rome, over all the churches. So eventually they all fell to the Romans also. They all became Roman Catholic, even though they were Christians. There were Christians in Gaul for centuries before Rome accepted Christianity. So the, so the idea that the Bishop of Rome is the head of the entire church, it's not found in any of the early church writers. And, and I've read a great number of them, or, or at least I've never read any one of them completely, but I've read a great deal of many of their writings. That idea is not found in any early church writers. It began probably in the late 4th century. It's not found in Eusebius. Even though there are hints in Eusebius, there are allusions to the desire of the bishops of Rome to rule over other Christians outside their own area. There are statements in, in Eusebius that show that they had that desire. It was not a fact and the fact that Justinian had to make a law to enforce it proves that the bishops of Rome were never the heads of the church until this law was created and enacted. And that's a novel. It's in his new laws. Okay, I guess we'll have to stop there for today. We didn't get quite as far through this as I thought we would. But we'll continue at this point in this proof when we return next week. Yep, no problem. And and go forward. Okay, thank you. Truthfits, thank you for being here. Praise Yahweh. Yeah, thanks for having me as always, Bill. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of the European race. Thank you. Good night.